Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I sent out a text yesterday on my text account about the relief I was feeling when I was heading in to get the vaccine and got barraged by people who feel the same way. It seems like there's quite a bit of joy going around as the vaccine spreads, people feeling like they can finally move on with their lives. It's nice that we have this communal feeling of joy. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion. Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Jen Cahoon, and Layla Atassi. And Layla and Laura, you'll soon be feeling that joy. You're going to be at the Wolstein Center in Yay. a couple of weeks, right? Yep. Yes. Cannot wait. I yep. got to tell you, that thing could not run more efficiently. It's loaded with people from the Army who are incredibly polite and friendly, and they just make it so easy for you to get in and out of there. I was in and out of there in the 15 minutes, and really, it was a delightful experience. Mike DeWine may have really put together a bad rollout of the coronavirus, but this uh, mass vaccination center could not be better run. Let's start. What surprising meetings are revealed in the calendar of Sam Randazzo, the former head of the Ohio Utilities Commission, who resigned after the feds raided his home and after First Energy disclosed paying him $4 million in the most suspicious circumstances possible? Jane Cahoon, that was a good get to uh, ask for his calendar because it does have some revealing information in it. Yeah, Andrew Tobias got his calendar and it shows that Randazzo repeatedly met with Governor DeWine and DeWine's staff while the now tainted House Bill 6 was under debate in 2019. And one of those meetings was the day before DeWine signed this nuclear bailout bill into law. It also shows that Randazzo met at least 10 times with officials from First Energy, which, as we know, is also at the center of this federal bribery probe, and as well as with other Ohio utilities while he was the PUCO chairman. And then among these regular meetings that Randazzo had with DeWine and his staff to discuss House Bill 6 and other energy issues was one with DeWine that was at the governor's mansion on April 24, 2019, to discuss energy issues. And that was days after the bill was introduced. And then there was another one on May 17th in a meeting in which Randazzo and DeWine were joined by then House Speaker Larry Householder, who is now under indictment regarding his role in the uh, passage of House Bill 6. So the, the final meeting on there was a July 22nd, 2019 meeting, and that was to brief DeWine and staff on House Bill 6 the day before DeWine signed the bill, although Randazzo did hold a conference call with Lieutenant uh, Governor John Houston on July 25th. So, you know, we, we already knew from records that, that Andrew had previously obtained that, 
that Randazzo had had email exchanges with a, a House staffer who was writing House Bill 6. And so he had a hand in developing that bill, including suggesting wording changes while the legislation was being developed that didn't make the final cut of the bill, but it would have helped a former client of Randazzo's by making it harder for wind farms to get regulatory approval. So a couple things just to note here, you know, Randazzo has not been charged in, in this investigation or accused of wrongdoing, even though his house was searched by the FBI. But um, his decisions as PUCO chairman obviously are now under a lot of scrutiny due to this $4 million payment that you that you mentioned. And I think these calendar entries that we got just shed some additional light on on actions that that he took that might have affected House Bill 6 or First Energy, you know, while he was this top state government regulator. And just to remind people that First Energy has said in filings that this $4 million payment led this regulator to act at the request or benefit of First Energy as a consequence of receiving the payment. So the other thing that's, uh, you know, worthy of note is that DeWine spokesman said that these meetings were run of the mill and not unusual for a cabinet member to have. And also that it was clear that DeWine supported, you know, he's got a long time history of supporting the nuclear power. um, That's a lot. Let's let's unpack some of this. One, (laughs) it it, it wouldn't be unusual in a normal situation for the head of the Public Utilities Commission to have some meetings with the utilities he regulates. It's it's only because of that $4 million payment that he got that is that First Energy's new leadership is putting real attention on that makes that sound suspicious. I do think it's odd that the head of the Utilities Commission would be working arm in arm with the governor and the legislature on a law that provides huge financial benefit to the utilities he regulates. You would think there'd be a hands-off thing there. But more importantly, I mean, so, so Randazzo's in huge trouble. We know it. You don't get your house raided unless there's something going on. This says a lot of, for Mike DeWine. I mean, the Dayton Daily News did that story, what, a week ago, a week and a half ago, that showed the incredible amount of money that, that First Energy had steered to DeWine and how close he was to them. And the fact that Randazzo is meeting with DeWine at the time he's signing this bill and the householders right. there. And the, I, Mike DeWine is, has some trouble ahead on this, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this, this And we know he, you know, DeWine basically asked First Energy to give to some of these groups that ended up supporting him and his daughter who was running for prosecutor. I should say that DeWine has acknowledged that he was aware of Randazzo's former business connection to, to First Energy, but he said he was not aware of this $4 million payment. But and he also said after the house was raided, he's a good man. He's and a I good don't man. Yeah. He's done anything wrong. Right. And look, right. he was DeWine's pick. So if he's crooked, if he ends up being indicted, if he ends up we learn more about what he was doing in the background for that $4 million. That's DeWine. DeWine yeah. picked him yeah. over the objections of people that were looking for somebody who would be more of a regulator and less of a friend to the utilities in this state. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What outrageous actions the federal prosecutors say a 20-year-old man from Lorraine took during the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol sparked by Donald Trump? 
Lord Johnson, we've seen all the antics and all the, the bad things that happened there, but man, this one had some distressing detail in it. Yeah, it did. And, you know, we've talked in the past about some Ohioans who had text messages going before, but this is, we're seeing exactly what the feds believe he did at the Capitol. So his name is Clifford Mackerel. He's 20 years old from Wellington originally, moved to Lorraine two years ago and works for a roofing company. He is charged with assaulting an officer, entering a restricted building on grounds without lawful authority, obstruction of justice, violent entry, and disorderly conduct on Capitol grounds. He could face a maximum of 14 years in prison. And he's one of more than 200 people charged so far. So this is what about actually happened there. The affidavit says a video of the attack shows a man pushing back barricades and later repeatedly striking a Capitol police officer, grabbing the officer's gas mask. At the same time, a member of the crowd sprayed what appeared to be bear spray towards officers. And then a man struck the officer, grabbed the mask. Another officer sought to protect his colleague. They were able to knock him down. I mean, there's like a skirmish going on here. So there was a guy with a camera, followed the man, asked him his name, and he said he was Cliff from Ohio. And then there were even Facebook posts about this later that the FBI got. Yeah, which he said, we have to kill the tyrannical government. I mean, that was right. probably the most alarming thing to come from this guy. Kill the tyrannical government. It's fascinating how the FBI is going around. I, th- this is one where the FBI had the face on the in the video. And knew he was from Ohio, so they Uh circulated it here, and one of his high school classmates recognized him and and phoned it in. So Ohio still has a growing role in what happened in Donald Trump's insurrection. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What changes did the Cleveland Police Inspector General recommend for the city's police chase policy in 2019, and what does Police Chief Calvin Williams have to say about them? Wayla Atassi is a bit of a moving target. Yeah, the inspector general of the Cleveland Police Department, who who actually is incidentally now the Cuyahoga County Sheriff, Christopher Villain, he issued a report back in June saying that the department should update its chase policy, which has pretty much remained unchanged since it was first drafted back in 2014. And that was, of course, a couple years after that infamous case in which a third, I believe it was a third of on-duty Cleveland police officers joined in that high-speed chase of Timothy Russell and Melissa Williams that ended up in that shootout in the East Cleveland parking lot. So the policy after that restricted chases to violent crime suspects and suspected intoxicated drivers, which don't you guys think that's a little bit, I mean, should you be chasing intoxicated drivers uh, at a high at a high speed? But that's another another issue. But it, the policy also created directions for officers who who must relay information to a supervisor about the traffic patterns, how the person is driving, road conditions and things like that. And the supervisor has the power to authorize the chase, given those variables and can call off the chase if it gets too dangerous, which seems completely reasonable to me, though I'd argue that, you know, like I said, provoking someone who's intoxicated to take off at high speed sounds like a terrible idea. But Villain recommended back in June more training using chase simulators and, and an annual review of, of all the chases over the period of a year to see what went right, what went wrong. And he also recommended clarifications to the chase policy because apparently the ambiguity of certain aspects of it leave officers hesitant to activate the policy at all. And Chief Williams is a staunch defender of the policy. He says he takes complete responsibility for what happens uh, under it. 
and to all the critics who believe that restricting chases emboldens criminals and causes crime waves, Williams pointed to the East Cleveland Police Department, which averages one chase a day and still crime is out of control there. The reason we're talking about any of this right now is because of the recent arrest of a group of teens who police believe were responsible for that rash of carjackings. And some city council members are arguing that the perpetrators would have been stopped sooner if the cops were permitted to chase them. They ended up getting arrested, though, after, what do you know, some good police work and the use of the department's uh, chopper. So, you know, for for the record, you know, I'm on the chief's side on this one. Sure. Some, so some... one thing, Courtney Astolfi let me know after our last discussion that his name was pronounced Violand. So, ah! um, <laughs> um, but, but the Violand was not advocating a loosening of the policy i mean that that advocacy right right right. the the council the city council people who are dealing with the crime want it loosened up but right adam faris did a a really deep dive on the chase policy talked to a lot of experts and they mostly said cleveland's doing this right cleveland cleveland is is respecting life and doing things the right way so you know, Violent wanted to do more training. He wanted supervisors to analyze every chase, what went right, what went wrong, and report that back to the officers, make it required reading. He was he was trying to put some more rigor to it, which is in direct opposition to the council and the chiefs in the middle saying, yeah, I don't want to change anything, um, which, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, it, the more it's training odd. is training is always a good idea. But but there's nothing wrong with having supervisors sign off on a chase or call it off if it gets too dangerous. I just feel that the city council members who are calling for the loosening of these restrictions are being very reactionary and short-sighted, given well, what they're dealing with in the moment. But it's an election forward. year. <laughs> they're being populist lately. It's an election oh, year. They want listen, to go back and you know say, what? hey, voters, I tried you know what? to get them. Chris, to- <laughs> I'm sure I can go back in our archives, oh, a decade or so, and find some of these same council members complaining that officers are endangering the public by chasing suspects through their neighborhoods. Give me 20 minutes and I'll come back and I'll tell you who they are. (laughs) What, politicians flip-flopping in the moment for an election year? Okay, good stuff. It's this week in the CLE. Is Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost grandstanding, playing party politics, or acting on his conscience and suing the federal government over the big stimulus package? Jane Coon, I can make a strong argument for two of those options, but not for the third. What's going on? Uh-huh. Well, I I was going to say perhaps it's all of the above, but I, but obviously you've you've got a viewpoint on this which we'll have to you'll have to tell us about. So Yost, who's a Republican, went out on his own to sue the Biden administration over rules in this new American Rescue Plan that seek to block Ohio and other states from using the federal stimulus money to pay for tax cuts. So Yost wants a federal judge to strike down that part of the stimulus and then leave the rest intact. He said that this rule on the, um, there's like $350 billion in state and local government money as part of this package. But he said that this ban on tax cuts violates states' rights to to set their own tax policy. And uh, he told us, you know, this gets right into the nitty gritty. It's the United States of America, not the federal government of America. Interestingly, you know, the day before, 21 Republican state attorneys general from other states, not Yost, sent a letter to the Biden administration basically threatening to sue. But as I said, Yost didn't join with them. He chose to file his own suit, although he said he welcomes their support. 
And uh, so that would be uh, the argument for grandstanding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm getting there. So anyway, Ohio is going to get a ton of money out of this, more than $5.4 billion from the package. And, you know, Governor Mike DeWine's already said he hopes to use some of it, you know, to expand broadband. So we haven't heard any talk yet about them necessarily turning this money down. But so and they and they don't DeWine and lawmakers don't have any immediate plans to cut taxes. But but Yost said, you know, these restrictions conceivably could, you know, block Ohio and other states from issuing like tax credits for economic development and, and things like that. So to get back to the heart of your question, does does he have a legitimate, you know, legal question here? I mean, certainly others on the conservative side would say, yes, this raises <laughs> but, concern. But but is he grandstanding or playing politics now? Now, stop, I'll just, stop, 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 stop. This is the same guy who defends the legislature every time they trample on home rule powers of cities. He's the guy that defends that, that says, no, no, the state government tells the little guy what they can and can't do. But when we're in the position of the little guy, he's claiming it's not fair. Look, the deal is the federal government's providing a bunch of money, but they want it to go to help people, to help people get past the pandemic. And if governments use that money to, to shore up their budgets and do tax cuts, they don't want it that way. So we, our right. choice is take the money or not. For him to claim this is an abuse of power, I mean, then, then he abuses the same power every time. He defends the state on home rule issues. You can't have yeah, it both and, you ways. Know, this is not the first time that federal government money has been offered with some strings attached. Yeah. You know, remember, like the 55 mile per hour speed limit that was tied to, to money and so forth. I, I'm sure we could come up with several examples. But, you know, maybe just to further bolster your argument on the front of grandstanding or playing politics, you know, people can judge for themselves. But I'd like to point out that he gave an interview on this matter first to the Washington Post, which got him some national attention. And and also the fact that we said he went out on his own, you know, you could draw some conclusions. I, got, I, don't, I don't think he has a leg to stand on, so I don't think he's going with his conscience. I think he's going with the Republican Party dogma, fighting back on the cruel big government. But he's the big government when it comes to yeah. cities like Cleveland. So, you know, <laughs> this is he, your love hate relationship with Dave Yost. Well, he he does some good <laughs> things and then he does things like this where it just he looks like a party hack. It's this week in the CLE. Why are we finding out now that a disgraced Cuyahoga County human resources official was promoted to the number one job at Cleveland State University just three weeks after his controversial hiring into the number two spot? Although Laura Johnston it, it might now be a de facto promotion and not an official promotion. The university can't get its facts straight and gave us two completely different versions yesterday. Right, exactly. We had a story up and then about five hours later, we had another story up. So uh, Cleveland State on Wednesday morning told Courtney Astolfi, our reporter, that Douglas Dykes, who, you know, the disgraced ex-county HR chief, had been promoted to this top spot. And then yesterday afternoon, a spokesman called back to retract that report, saying, contrary to what he said, he hadn't actually moved into the vacated position. What happened is his boss, Janelle Hughes, was promoted at CSU. And it was about three weeks after Dykes was hired in December. And so the question is, has he been doing her job? Has he been just filling in? Meanwhile, she was the one who actually asked him to apply in the first place, which is really interesting. So in her new role, Hughes oversees 300 staff members across several departments. She got a $50,000 raise 
than CSU is saying, but she's still running the HR department. Don't worry. So there's, there's some questions. Well, there. except they said he has been acting in her stead. And look, this isn't about Doug Dykes. This is about CSU. I mean, they, they have, you know, they were, they, they lied when they said that he was the, they didn't have qualified candidates in the 37 that applied. And then we got the records and they had listed five as in the most qualified category. And some had uh, backgrounds that were better than his in some areas. Uh, you know, and they, they've just mishandled this from the beginning. But here, Courtney has been working on this. Okay, did he get promoted or not? They come back and they say, yes, he was, he was acting head after his boss got promoted. And now he's got the job, but he's not getting a, a more money or a new title. And then hours later, no, no, wrong. He's not been promoted, although he's still in the acting role. Like what? What's the story here? Right, and, and it wasn't like we just like asked the question and they responded immediately. I mean, this question had been out there for a month or so, so they had plenty of time that they took to respond to her. That they should have gotten their story straight. It just raises huge questions about their competence. Look, and they're smarting. They, you know, they've met with the editorial board and they've taken issue with with describing what Harlan Sands sent out as a lie, even though we stand by that. So this is sensitive. And knowing that it's hypersensitive in their ranks, they still screwed it up. You would think that before you got back to us, you'd really be careful and make sure that you've got it right. And they blew it again. It's like, who is running that place right now? <laughs> Seems like they, they just need a whole review of their operations. It's this week in the CLE. What is the status of a plan to plant a memorial garden for the victims of serial killer Anthony Sowell? who died earlier this year on death row. Layla Tassi, I, uh, I'm switching the questions around because this is Meteor, and uh, I figure you might have something to say about this one. Yeah, the, uh, the Western Reserve Land Conservancy announced this week that, that they and other organizations have, have completed raising money for the $300,000 they needed for the Memorial Garden to honor the 11 women who were murdered at that site when it was the location of serial killer Anthony Sowell's home. The Land Conservancy says that they hope to begin construction on it this summer and to complete it in the fall. It recently received about $147,000 from, from the Clean Ohio Fund, which put it over the top for what it needed to get started. In, in 2016, the Land Conservancy acquired this property and two adjacent vacant parcels Today, the site includes eight residential lots that are vacant, and they're calling the project the Garden of Eleven Angels. I think there are already 11 trees planted there in memory of the, the women who died there. I'm not exactly sure, but I'm pretty sure that's true. Steve Litt, our colleague, reported the design includes a low wall in the shape of an infinity loop, flower beds, trees, a birdhouse, a bike rack and a monument designed by local artist Kevin Robinette will be featured within that infinity loop, kind of back from the street a little ways. And in a really special touch, I, I was really touched by this, the, the estate of Maya Angelou gave permission for the use of a quotation from her poem, Still I Rise in the Garden. I'm, I'm just so glad this ended up in the hands of the Land Conservancy and that they were able to raise the money they needed to make this design a reality. This was so long overdue. You know, when, when Sowell died earlier this year, my colleague Eric Heisig was at the memorial site during his reporting of that story, and he sent me this photo of this old weather-beaten placard that was leaning up against a fence 
I think I sent that to you, Chris. And and through the peeling paint of this thing, you could barely make out the words gone but not forgotten. And it really made me wonder if we would ever see the memorial that these women deserved at that site. And I'm just so glad to see that this is the year it's going to finally happen. And the design looks beautiful. And because it's the Land Conservancy, we believe that there'll be maintenance because the, the worst thing that could happen is you oh, get this yeah. thing all built up and then nobody pays attention, it falls right. into disrepair. And it, so they'll take care of it and, and maintain it as a lasting memorial. Mm-hmm. I hope so. Yeah. And I, I, I think that we can we can rest easy with it being in their hands. I, I You're right. If it fell into disrepair, I think that would just be heart wrenching for, for that particular site. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. How is the Ohio legislature making things easier on students this year when it comes to standardized testing and graduation requirements? Jen Cahoon, we talked about that we thought this would be coming, but they're actually moving on it and doing the right thing, right? Yeah, they have moved on it. This bill, which is called House Bill 67, cleared the legislature yesterday. The Senate voted on it, and then the House concurred, which means it's now headed to Governor Mike DeWine's desk. It's going to give schools flexibility on graduation requirements and, and standardized testing. It's going to extend the window for standardized testing this year and remove measures that, that tie those results to school performance and accountability measures. And it's also going to temporarily unlink the graduation requirements from the testing. So if a senior has successfully completed the high school curriculum or individual education program, you know, they can graduate. So it also would require the Ohio Department of Education to seek a federal waiver for exemption from sanctions or penalties related to the the state standardized testing scores. So you're right, it's going to help kids who've been hurt by the pandemic and who've fallen behind during this extended remote learning period. Um, some initial research shows that that performance on standardized testing is is down and, and fewer students have been taking the test. So that's why there's a big concern about this. The Biden administration was adamant that they do the testing right. without strings because we need to know as a nation how badly the past year hurt the education of students. The state wanted to just waive it, which right. would have left That was it. the original intent of the bill. But we wouldn't but, have but, known then how, how bad things are. And so the Biden administration is like, no, no, no do the testing. We won't penalize you for it. It won't mean anything, but it'll tell us what we have to do to, to repair the system. Exactly. Yeah. They, they still wanted to encourage states to be flexible. And testing starts this month, right? It does. Yes. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. When will Playhouse Square open for the first time since the pandemic began? And what will the show be? Laura Johnston, they're pretty ecstatic there. That place has been shuttered and dark for a year. Exactly. I, I I think mine was the second, was the first day it was canceled. Jesus Christ Superstar on its second day of its run was like, that's it. We're closing down. It's been more than a year. So June 11th, they will open with the Choir of Man for a month-long run at the Ohio Theater. And uh, this is a multi-talented cast of singers, dancers, and musicians performing a rousing mix of Irish tunes, some pop music, Broadway classics, at an idea of an Irish pub. So it sounds like a fun show, and I think they are really excited. They, they've got to follow all of the coronavirus rules. You know that includes about a twenty-five percent capacity. So the the thousand seat theater, it's really easy to do the math. Two hundred fifty people. They'll be socially distanced in pods of two, four, or six guests. They're asking everybody to wear a mask if they're sick to stay home. 
they'll have lots of hand sanitizer and you can only eat and drink in your seats. You can't mo- like meander around the lobby and drink, but this is, this is big news. And then again, the um, Broadway series, which I believe they're going to announce in a couple of weeks for the following year. The one that has been canceled will start in the fall. So, okay. <laughs> you and Layla will be getting the shot. Jane, you, you've been, had the first shot. Are you going to be comfortable doing that? Hell um, no. Yeah, I'm going. <laughs> Not me, man. I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm going to hang back. No way. Yeah, I'm. I'm. Laurie, you're. You're. You're the the reckless one, I guess. I'm <laughs> just not ready to say. <laughs> My sister volunteers there. And... I, I have not bought tickets to this show, but when the Broadway shows start up again in the fall and I have my tickets, then yes, I, I will plan on going. Although, you know, that's going to be a really interesting question. You know, you have your seats, you know, that you bought God knows how long ago that are supposed to be in such, such an aisle. Like if we're socially distancing, you can't have everybody that has seats sitting in their seats so there's a whole lot of questions there too and my bet is they can't make money on the broadway series if it's a 25 percent capacity thank you laura thank you jane thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast